So we are now in week five of our Genesis series, and last week was a pretty heavy week, right? Uh, we talked about sin, and uh, this week is going to be lighter. We're talking about murder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course, we, uh, we talked about Adam and Eve's disobedience and the enormous consequences of that disobedience, and this week we're going to see how that disobedience goes on to affect the following generations by looking at the story of Cain and Abel. Before we do that, though, uh, before we move on to Genesis 4, I wanted us to look back at Genesis 3, because we kind of ran out of time last week, and there were a few, a few things at the end of that chapter that I wanted to comment on, and I didn't. And I think they kind of helped to set the stage for where we're going in Genesis 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 3, chapter, um, verse 22. Uh, chapter 3, verse 22. And before we get into this, let's bow our heads together and uh, say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together in this place and to worship you and to learn about you. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would have a hunger to learn from your word. I pray that we would come to it humbly and uh, recognize that it is full of mystery and beauty and truth. And I pray right now that you would speak to us through it, that you would uh, illuminate our minds and help us to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us. Um, give us wisdom. We want your wisdom, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So uh, you, you'll remember from last week that Adam and Eve had... Uh, received the consequences of their sin. God told them what the consequences would be. And then there was this note of hopefulness and grace where uh, God clothed their nakedness, where he provided garments for them. And this is what comes right after that. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Stop. <laughs> That verse right there has, I, I can think of at least two significant questions that it raises. And uh, the first one is, who is the us that God is speaking to? Right? What's going on there? And uh, you might have noticed, you might have had the same question back in chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. I realized this week as I was preparing the sermon, I quoted that, I've probably quoted that verse more than any other verse in Genesis so far <laughs> over the last four weeks, and I never commented on why is it in the plural? Why does it say let, let us make man in our image? Maybe you were wondering that. Um, so what is going on in both of these verses? Why is uh, there this, this plural address? Who is God talking to? Well, uh, some scholars, and uh, uh, particularly a lot of Jewish scholars, will say something like, well, there's a divine council, and there are these archangels that God is, is talking to, that he is conferring with. But I have never liked that explanation uh, for a couple reasons, and one of the biggest ones is that he says, let us make man in our image, right? But there's no place in scripture that says that human beings are made in the image of angels. We're only talked about as being made in the image of God. And right after uh, this verse, in verse 27, uh, it says, so God created man in his own image, right? It doesn't say, so God created man in their image, as in, in the image of God and angels. It just says, in his image, so I don't think that, that that angel explanation works. 
what I think we need to do is to see God as speaking to himself in these verses. It's the only one, that, that's the only explanation that makes sense to me. God is speaking to himself. But of course, that raises the question, well, why is he speaking in the plural? What is going on there? Well, the only answer that makes sense to me is that these verses are hinting that God himself is a relationship. Uh, today, we, we believe in this concept that is hard to grasp, known as the Trinity, uh, which says that God has always been a perfect relationship of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, it's not like the doctrine is clearly, the doctrine of the Trinity is being clearly presented to us in these verses, but I think we see a hint of it in the very beginning of Scripture, uh, that God is this relationship of, uh, of multiple persons. And uh, we see it hinted right here in the beginning of the Bible, and then as we get into the New Testament, we see this mystery of the plurality of God uh, being revealed more and more, particularly through Jesus. So I, I hope that for all of you, that's just a, a neat thing, you know, that so early in the Bible, we have this hint of what we, we have come now to believe and recognize uh, in the doctrine of the Trinity. So God is talking to himself, and he says, man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So here's the second big question. What does it mean that man now knows good and evil? What is that all about? Uh, clearly, it means that in some sense, humanity has become like God. Now, why would that be a bad thing, right? Human beings are supposed to represent God. We're made in God's image. We're supposed to be like God. Well, <clears throat> again, this is something that people de debate over, but I'm pretty convinced that what this means is that humanity has made itself the authority on what is good and evil. You might remember uh, when we talked about last week uh, about Eve falling into sin. I said that one of the things that, one of the mistakes that Eve made was she set herself up as the one who determines what is good and what is evil. God said one thing, the serpent said another thing, and she said, well, let me figure this out. This tree looks beautiful. It looks like the food would be tasty to eat, so I can't think of anything wrong with eating from a tree, so I'm going to eat from it. So what, what, what Eve did in that moment was she set herself up as the one who determines what is good and what is evil. She became the judge. And God is the only one who's supposed to be in that position of calling the shots on what is good and what is evil. Because God is the only one who's omniscient. He's the only one that is all-knowing. We're not in a position where we can really discern what is truly good and what is truly evil well. Uh, we need God to help us to do that. And so I think that's why the tree that Adam and Eve are not supposed to eat from is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not because it's some magical tree where when you bite into the fruit, now all of a sudden you're aware of good and evil. It's because by eating from the tree, you are declaring, I have the knowledge of good and evil. I am the one who knows. I am the ultimate judge. So, uh, when God says this, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, what I think we need to hear is something like, oh no, human beings have set themselves up as in my role, basically. They've made themselves the judges of what is right and wrong, and this is not good. And God's response to that is this. 
Um, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So if Adam and Eve had been able to eat from something called the tree of life, then they would have been immortal. And God recognizes that this is a very bad thing. Because when you have human beings setting themselves up as the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong, it is a very dangerous thing for those beings to then be immortal, right? You can wreck, you can wreck a lot of destruction in God's creation if you think you are the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong. And you can wreck even more destruction if you live forever, if you're immortal. So God says we must cut off access to the tree of life. And so they are uh, banished from the garden, paradise lost. So, what happened to Adam's and Eve's family after losing paradise? That is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. So, let's turn to chapter 4, where we find out. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, if you're anything like me, right now you have a question, which is, why didn't God like Cain's offering? It's not very nice. I mean, don't you wonder that? It seems like Cain did the best that he could, right? Cain worked the soil, so what's the best that he could offer? Well, fruit of the soil. And Abel, he kept flocks, so what's the best that Abel could offer? He brought the fat portions of the uh, firstborns of his flock. So both of them, as far as we can tell, they offered the best that they had to offer. But God did not look with favor on Cain's offering. Why is that? Well, some people would say, um, well, like most people, God likes fatty meat more than he likes carrots. Can you blame him? Uh, but I don't think that's a good answer. For one, it makes God seem kind of shallow. Uh, and it's not like Cain had meat to offer anyway, right? So other people might say, well, it's because in order to atone for sin, there must be the shedding of blood. And Cain's sacrifice had no shedding of blood, but Abel's did. Uh, but there's, there's problems with that answer, too. Uh, for one thing, it's not clear that this is a sacrifice to atone for sins. This is an offering to God. There's, there's a difference there. And secondly, we know from later in the Old Testament that God pr asks for... Um, uh, offerings from the fruit of the soil. He, he asks for those offerings and he receives them. So he's not on principle opposed uh, to receiving vegetable offerings. So, the reason that God has favor on Abel's sacrifice and not on Cain's, I, I'm convinced, has nothing to do with the actual content of those offerings. 
the content of the offering is not the primary concern to God. What God really cares about is the heart behind the offering. Uh, and this is a theme, actually, that shows up over and over and over again throughout Scripture. And I think it's neat that it shows up this early in the Bible, too, because this is something that Israel is going to be taught repeatedly. Um, and it's something that appears in the, in the New Testament, too. Uh, one of my favorite passages in the Gospels is uh, uh, in Mark 12. It describes how there is a, a poor widow who comes and places two coins uh, worth only a fraction of a penny into the temple treasury. She makes this offering to the Lord. And uh, it talks about how at the same time there's rich people coming by and they're, they're placing large amounts of money in the temple treasury. And Jesus witnesses this poor widow doing this and he, he loves it. He gets excited and he calls his disciples over and he says to them, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, if we have this passage in mind, and we believe that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament, and we ask ourselves, why did God not look upon Cain's sacrifice with favor? We can't possibly answer by saying, well, because God likes the meaty, fatty portions more than the vegetables. Right? If God can find two small copper coins more beautiful than large sums of money, that are put into the temple treasury, then surely he can find vegetables more beautiful than meat. But it's all about the attitude of the heart that makes the offering, right? The most important thing is the attitude of the heart. And it's very clear from where the Cain and Abel story goes next that the attitude of Cain's heart is not good, right? I mean, we all know where this is headed. I said it in the beginning, murder, right? <laughs> Cain's heart is not in a good place. So the problem with Cain is not that he's a vegetable farmer and God's more of a meat guy. Uh, God would have looked at those vegetables with joy and delight if they had been given in the right spirit. And God recognizes that Cain has this heart problem, and so he tries to warn him before things really go south. So continuing in verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So here we have God giving advice to a man who has an attitude problem. And keep in mind that at this point, Cain has not committed any really egregious sin, as far as we know. But God can see that this is a high-risk individual. And some of us are high-risk individuals. And even if we're not a high-risk individual right now, I'm sure that eventually, at some point, we're going to find ourselves being a high-risk individual for some uh, very serious sin. And so I think we need to hear what, Cain is say what God is saying to Cain uh, to us. We need to personalize it. And specifically, I think we need to, to hear this line. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at the door. I was uh, listening to Tim Keller, pastor I really appreciate, uh, preaching on this passage not too long ago. And he, he brought out an insight that I think is really valuable. Sin crouches. Sin crouches. Uh, and what that means is that sin sneaks up on us. You know, we might not think it's really there. We might not think it's a, it's a big deal. 
but it's kind of lying in wait. That word uh, crouch, that verb for crouch, would be used for an animal uh, you know, seeking out its prey, uh, like a leopard you know, crouching right before it pounces. And, and, and what Keller says is that sin is like that. Sin is like that leopard that crouches. You don't really notice that it's there. And then all of a sudden, it's on you, it's pounced, and you've completely lost control. You know, once the leopard is on you, what do you do, right? <clears throat> uh, and you know, I think when, Cain, when God said this to Cain, Cain probably had a lot of anger in his heart. He had a lot of envy. He had a lot of pride. And all of those sins were crouching. They were like that, that crouching leopard, ready to pounce and take total control of him. And God was warning him, if you don't deal with these things now, you are going to completely lose control in a little while. These sins are going to eat you alive. And the same is true for us in our own lives. You know, if we experience these, quote, minor sins, pride, envy, anger, uh, those sins are crouching, ready to pounce on us and to completely uh, remove our, our control. And what we need to do before we completely lose control is take action. You know, if we're, if we're envious, we should stop and, and say, what am I grateful for? And focus on that and thank God for those things. You know, if we're, if we're angry, we should choose forgiveness. And if we're prideful, we should humble ourselves by recognizing, you know, our weaknesses and, and our need for grace. And if we don't, then these crouching sins can devour us and we can lose control in, in a dramatic and very harmful way. Now, unfortunately, despite God's warning, Cain does not master his sin. He does not master these crouching uh, sins. In verse 8, uh, it says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So there it is. Very matter of fact. The first murder. And <laughs> it's, isn't it striking that it only takes one generation of humanity to get to this? For it to come to this. And this is not just an accident, right? This is premeditated murder. This is murder in the first degree. Cain says, let's go out to the field. He's planning this. This is not just on a whim. You know, last week, we talked about how sin makes us desperate. And specifically, it makes us desperate to cover our shame, right? Uh, Adam, Adam was ashamed of his sin, and he was, he was so ashamed and desperate to cover his sin that when God asked him, did you eat from the tree, do you remember what he did? He blame shifted, right? He didn't own the responsibility for committing the sin. Instead, he said, the woman, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me the fruit to eat. And what I wanted us to see there is that Adam was so desperate to cover his shame, to cover his sin and hide it, that he was willing to sacrifice and damage his two closest relationships, right? His relationship with his wife and his relationship with God. That is what sin does. Sin leads us to destroy our relationships. And what I want us to see here in the Cain and Abel story is that now we have an even more dramatic example of how sin makes us desperate to cover our shame. Okay, it makes Cain so desperate to cover his shame that he murders. Because for Cain, Abel was a constant reminder of his shame, 
right? I have to imagine that every time that Cain looked at Abel, he thought, oh, goody two-shoes Abel, he's got a good relationship with God, you know, his heart's pure and in the right place and everything. And every time he looked at Abel, there was always that comparison, and he felt this shame, he felt this sense of inadequacy. And so what does he do? In desperation, in desperation to cover his shame, he murders him. You know, sin can lead us to blame shift, it can lead us to lie, and it can even lead us to murder. That desperate desire to cover ourselves. <clears throat> Continuing in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Now you might be wondering, well, why does God ask, where's your brother? God already knows, right? I mean, he proves that he knows in the next verse, in case you're wondering. I think the reason that God asks the question is because he's giving Cain an opportunity to be honest, right? to be honest with himself and honest with God. He's giving Cain an opportunity to confess, it's, it's the same thing that God did when Adam and Eve sinned, right? God knew that Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree, but he still asked them, have you? Have you done this? He's giving them an opportunity to confess. God wants that kind of relationship with us, that, that honesty. He wants to draw us out. Uh, but uh, even though God gives Cain that opportunity, Cain doesn't take it, right? Where's your brother? I don't know. And whereas Adam blame-shifted, Cain just flat-out lies, right? <laughs> he doesn't even acknowledge what he did. And then he, he talks to God as if God is being unreasonable for even asking, am I my brother's keeper? Why is he my responsibility? It's pretty, pretty bold. So he lies right to God himself, and he shows resentment to God for asking the question. So to put it in the nicest possible terms, Cain is a brat, right? He's a murderer, but he's also a brat, so continuing in verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. So <clears throat> Cain appears to be afraid that someone is going to try to kill him in order to avenge his brother's blood. Now, I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> if I was God, I feel like at this point I would say, listen, buddy, you reap what you sow. You're scared someone's going to kill you? Oh, poor baby. You ever think about how Abel felt? That he was a little scared of dying too when you started to beat him. You brought this punishment on yourself. I tried to warn you. I told you sin is crouching at the door. You have to master it. And what did you do? You completely ignored me. And then you went and premeditated murder. In cold blood, you killed your brother. Your punishment is too much for you to bear. You're too much for me to bear, you brat. You know, that's what I would want to say. And that's why the next couple verses here are, in my, in my opinion, the most incredible verses in the story. Continuing in verse, verse 15, 
but the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God punishes Cain. He does. But he also has grace for him. And he does something to help ensure that no one is going to kill him. Our our translation says, the Lord put a mark on Cain. Now, I have no idea what that mark was uh, or why it would have signaled the people not to kill him. I've heard that it's possible that this really should be translated as something more like the Lord gave Cain a sign that no one who found him would kill him. So that maybe that's a possibility, that it wasn't actually a literal mark, but God in some way gave him a sign that you're going you're gonna to be safe. Um, whatever the case, the, the Lord displayed in some way to Cain that he could be confident that he, he would be protected, that he would not die. And that is an incredible thing, right? Because Cain did not deserve that. He did not deserve that at all. There's an irony here that Cain kills someone, and then God makes it so Cain cannot be killed, right? That is totally unmerited favor. That is grace, totally undeserved. And it's similar to what we saw last week uh, with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve disobeyed, but God had grace on them. He covered their nakedness by giving them garments to wear. And what what we see in both of these stories is that God cares about justice, very important to him, care about justice, but he also cares about mercy, You know, we see that concern for justice because God cannot let the crime against Abel just just slide. He can't just ignore it, right? God said, Abel's blood cries from the ground, right? God cares about victims. God cares about justice. He cares about the cries of the oppressed, and he stands with them. But at the same time, God also cares about those who commit the crimes, And he would rather see those people turn from their wickedness and repent than see them be destroyed and be condemned. I suspect that the reason that God keeps Cain alive is because he wants him to repent. He wants him to have an opportunity to change. The New Testament tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And that's what we see being embodied here in this story. God is not willing that Cain should perish, even though he deserves it. God's not willing So God cares both about the victim and the perpetrator. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, are we like God in this respect? Because it is very, very hard to care about both the victim and the perpetrator. That is an extraordinarily difficult balance uh, to achieve. Now, let me me be clear. If this text is going to be our example, uh, caring about perpetrators does not mean letting them off the hook, right? Cain... Cain is punished, but at the same time, Cain is still given, in mercy, an opportunity uh, to repent. His life is not taken from him, even though that would be perfectly fair. And what I want us to realize this morning is that, really, God's mercy on Cain is good news for every one of us. Because if God can have mercy on Cain, he can have mercy on us, right? Whatever our crime might be, God would still rather see us repent and be redeemed than be destroyed and condemned. God is more merciful than we deserve. 
Now, in the rest of the chapter, we are told about Cain's family. Uh, it says that Cain has a wife, and they have a son, and Cain goes and builds a city, and his son has a son, and that son has a son, and on and on for multiple generations. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I realize that some of us may have some questions right now. Um, and these are the questions I'm thinking of. Where'd Cain's wife come from? Uh, where'd the people come from that filled Cain's city? It says Cain went and built a city. Uh, who were the people that Cain was afraid of? Mom and dad? Were mom and dad the ones that were going to kill him? Right? Those, those are tough questions, aren't they? Oh, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, if you're struggling with these questions, before I make any attempt to even try and answer these, I want to say three things, okay? First of all, three things to keep in mind. Number one, not everyone answers these questions in the same way. So if you start to do some research on your own, try to figure out how do I put all this together and make sense of it, not everybody is going to answer that the same way. Just keep that in mind, okay? Uh, so if our, um, if our salvation is dependent on figuring that out, we have a problem because there's, there's a lot of disagreement and our salvation is not dependent on that. Uh, second, however we answer these questions, the main points of the story are still communicated. So the main theological, moral uh, points and the main, the main points about redemptive history, about what God is doing, those are all still there, regardless of how we answer those three questions. Okay? Keep that in mind. And this is another one that I think, <laughs> number three, that we often miss, which is whoever wrote or edited Genesis didn't seem to think these questions were a problem. Okay? We always assume, no, I shouldn't say we always assume. Let's just say, in general, if people find something in the Bible that's hard to understand, the, the automatic assumption is, well, whoever put this together was an idiot. You know, they just didn't realize that it made no sense. Well, hold on a second here. Do you think you're more likely to recognize an inconsistency than the person that actually wrote it or edited it together that was that personally invested in it? So I think we need to give the benefit of the doubt and recognize whoever wrote or edited this did not seem to think that this question was a big issue. Okay, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be of any concern at all, but this was not a make-or-break thing for whoever put this together. So let's, let's keep that in mind. So all that said, okay, I'll propose one possibility uh, for how to work this out. And again, I hesitate to bring this up because I realize it may raise more uh, questions than it answers. But uh, one possibility is if you look at the genealogies in Genesis, the ones that talk about how long people lived, they talk about people living for a really long time. And I realize that that can sound uh, strange or fanciful to us, but, you know, this was a long time ago, and I feel like, how do we know, you know, what was really possible in terms of how long people could live? I mean, I've heard there are tortoises that live for like 400 years. So, <laughs> I mean, who knows what would be possible uh, in terms of, of human beings? You know, maybe with something was different about uh, the human gene pool at that point in ancient history. Uh, maybe something was different about the environment that, that helped people to have longer lifespans. And if you have really long lifespans, you can have a lot of children. 
Right? And you can also have a lot of generations that are all alive at the same time. And we're not told exactly when Cain and Abel were born. Uh, we're not told exactly when the murder took place. And so it's possible that this could have been as long as, you know, 100 years after uh, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And so it's possible that in 100 years, if, you know, people are reproducing, being fruitful and multiplying, as the creation mandate uh, said, that you could have a significant population of people by that point. Um, so that would help to explain why Cain was afraid, because there would, be, there would be other people out there besides just mom and dad, right? And those people would also probably be people that knew him. Because, <laughs> you know, nobody's going to want to take vengeance on Cain if they have no idea who he or Abel is, right? So who Cain is afraid of is specifically people who know him and are going to be upset by what he's done. So, you know, th this helps to explain possibly uh, how, how, how to work that out. And then, as for the existence of a city, well, we need to understand that city doesn't mean what we think of when we think of city, you know, this big place with skyscrapers and everything like that. I mean, this could just be as simple as a place with some walls um, that was meant to be a refuge. And um, if we're thinking of it in those terms, and we're thinking in terms of Cain and his descendants, well, you know, you, you could have quite a few descendants in a, in a, within a generation or two um, that could fill a space like that. The trickier thing is Cain's wife. <laughs> because um, the, the, the explanation that seems to make the most sense obviously makes us uncomfortable, that it was a very close, she was a very close relative. Uh, a sister or a half-sister or something like that. Um, now, I think that the text understands that whoever Cain's wife is, she was a descendant of Adam and Eve. That's, that's my understanding. And uh, so we end up in a situation where it, um, it, it seems like Cain has married a very close relative. And of course, that makes us uncomfortable, and it should make us uncomfortable, because as we find out just a bit, little bit later in the Bible, the Mosaic Law forbids the marriage of close relatives. So, you know, if this was something that God was okay with, it was only something that he was okay with for a time in human history, okay, a very specific period. And then after that, he was like, no, no more of that, okay? And if this does make you extremely squeamish, this explanation, uh, keep in mind that there is never a point in scripture where marriage between parents and children is okay. Because what does God say when he institutes marriage in, uh, in chapter two? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, right? So at least take some solace in that if this makes you really squeamish. Like, you know, that is um, absolutely forbidden from the very start and the whole way through. And it does not take long into the uh, into the Bible for marriage to close relatives to be forbidden. But anyway, however you resolve those questions, I encourage you not to let it make or break uh, your appreciation for the big ideas in this story. And the big ideas in this story are what we've talked about, things like God's concern for the attitude of our hearts, right, rather than just external religious practices like making offerings. Um, sin's tendency to crouch in our lives and then seek to control us and pounce on us, uh, human capacity for evil and violence, and God's concern both for victims and perpetrators, right? These are the big ideas that we need to focus on. We shouldn't, you know, get too worried about where did Cain's wife come from. Now, before we close, we're almost done. 
uh, I want us to look a little bit more at the text, because this is a unit in Genesis, and we're not quite done with the unit. Uh, we're told that five generations after Cain came a man named Lamech. And we're told that Lamech marries two women, Ada and Zillah. Now, this is the first instance in the Bible of what we call polygamy, one man marrying multiple wives. And I've talked a little bit about how there are some people who try to argue that this is part of God's design, God approves of this, God's fine with polygamy, because you see multiple stories in the Old Testament of polygamy. But what I want us to notice is that, as I've said already, when God first institutes marriage, it is not one man and multiple wives, right? It's just two, right? And... And what I also want us to notice is that the first time polygamy appears, this man is an exemplar of a horrible person. Right? He is not supposed to be looked upon as somebody that is doing the right thing. Uh, his polygamy is supposed to be an example of how far humanity is drifting from God's intended design and purpose. So, And we see this more. If you have any doubt about that, uh, <laughs> here's the kind of person that Lamech is. Lamech is. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives... Ada and, Zell- and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And you'll notice in your Bibles this is set aside because it's kind of written in a poetic way. Maybe it was something that he even sung. So I like to say that this is like the first gangster rap. <laughs> Lamech. Um, So Lamech is an example of human wickedness, right? And what we're seeing here is that sin sin is just compounded, right? Cain was violent. He murdered his brother. But at least he had the decency to try and lie and and, and hide when somebody confronted him about it. But Lamech, Lamech is just like, yeah, I I kill people. I'm way worse than Cain, and I'm, I'm proud of it, Right? And he even says, I, I, I killed a young man for injuring me. And that word for young man, it actually has the connotation of child. It can be used to describe a child. So Lamech is saying, basically, a really young guy, possibly a kid, hurt me or injured me in some way. And so I just killed him. And I'm proud of it. <clears throat> so humanity has gotten really messed up. And the polygamy, too, is is part of that. And what God is showing us, what the Bible is showing us here, is that human sin has just compounded. It's like a snowball that's caught caught up speed, and it's getting bigger and bigger. Now, remember, God made a promise that Eve's offspring wouldn't just get worse and worse. Right? Uh, Remember what he said to the devil last week? We looked at this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And what God was promising, that one day a particular descendant, a particular offspring, would come through the woman, and that descendant would defeat the devil. Okay, that, that descendant would crush the head of the serpent. It would hurt in the process. His heel would be bruised. Right? This is what we see fulfilled through Jesus on the cross. Uh, but, the, but the serpent would be destroyed. And so this is the promise, right, that's ringing in the ears of Adam and Eve as they're having their family. 
And they're waiting for this offspring to come, this offspring who's going to stop this, this degeneration into greater and greater wickedness. Now, Cain definitely wasn't that offspring, right? No way. And Lamech definitely is not that offspring. And if humanity keeps getting more and more wicked, it's hard to believe that anyone is ever going to be able to be that offspring. But at the end of this chapter, the Bible wants us to know that God hasn't forgotten about the promise. Even though Cain's descendants are really messed up, even though sin's compounding, we're seeing more and more wickedness and ugliness and deviation from God's design, we have a hint that the descendant who will crush the head of the serpent, the one who's going to destroy evil and sin forever, is still on the way. Okay, God has not forgotten. Because here's what we're told. Okay, right after we learn about Lamech and how awful he, he is, we, re, we return to Adam and Eve. And it says, Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. So we're told Cain and his descendants are definitely not the only line uh, that's descending from Eve. There's another one. And there's a glimmer of hope in this line that we don't, we don't hear about in Cain's line because we're told at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Okay, in other words, people in this line, in the line of Seth, they didn't forget. They didn't forget about God. They were worshiping him. And yeah, sure they were messed up, sure they were under the curse, but they were acknowledging God. And that means that they had faith in his promises. And specifically, they had faith in the promise that a descendant would come and he would destroy sin and evil. The one who was promised. And what this is telling us is that even though sin was compounding and getting stronger, God was still stronger than that sin. God was still going to be faithful to his promise. Lamech might be boasting about how many people he was killing, but hope was not lost. And we need to remember that, just like then, even when the wickedness and the violence in the world seems to be getting stronger, that God is still faithful. And his promise to crush the serpent is being fulfilled. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that despite the fact that uh, humanity has fallen into this cycle of violence and uh, pride and cruelty and sin, uh, we thank you that you have not left us alone in that. We thank you that uh, there is hope that you are with us, and we thank you uh, that you have crushed the head of the serpent through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have been faithful to your promise and that you will be faithful uh, to the promise that we are waiting on now, that you will eventually um, completely eradicate sin and evil and uh, that we will live with you forever uh, in, in the way that you originally intended. Lord, I pray uh, that this amazing story that the Bible teaches uh, about your love for us and uh, the redemption that you have offered. Um, I just pray that it would become more and more alive to us and that we would be more and more in awe of the way that the pieces fit uh, throughout the whole scriptures, Lord, from Genesis to Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.